Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. It's good to be back with you after a week off, Riley. Yeah, welcome back. I hope you're feeling better. I am. Thank you. You had a good conversation with Shiloh, I take it? I did. In fact, I just re-listened to it uh, this morning just to get a sense for it now that I'm kind of distanced from it. And I I enjoyed it. thought it was good. (laughs) I've yet to enjoy it. I'm looking forward to it. Well, today we have a topic that's it's something that really intrigued me when I saw it on, on our list of topics where you had made some suggestions, and that is the importance of the church. I guess what really spoke to me right away was that there was a, a recent conference talk that had a similar title. And so I know we're going to take maybe a little bit different approach from that without discounting that. And so what we want to do really, I think, is start off by defining what we mean when we say the church. And we can think of it, the church. I remember you saying pre-show we might think lowercase c, but then I thought, okay, I get that. But then I thought maybe uppercase c, but we mean the church, meaning the community, the worldwide community of all who profess Christ, right? Yeah. So all Christians. And then we can, so we can think churches is maybe another way to think about it. And so there's that. And then, of course, we're dealing with this from a contemplative perspective. So that the question is, what does the church have to offer us as contemplatives? Which... Is that is that too provocative a way to ask the question? <laughs> well, I think I would augment it just slightly, and, and we'll get into this part of the conversation later, but it's really about how we in, interface with with the church. And I don't, right. again, I don't just mean, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but the global body of Christian believers, you know, like how do we interface with with churches and both as consumers and as, um, and as you know, producers? Okay, that's interesting. We'll have to go into a little bit more of what we mean by that, right? Yeah. So this should be a, a good conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, maybe to start off, let's let's give a little bit of context or background for where this this term even came from. I mean, the 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 term church itself, the English word church, is probably more related to the Germanic uh, for Kirche, but in the in the New Testament, at least that that kind of comes from from the Greek, we have this word ecclesia. And what's the background on that word, Chris? You're the language guy. Well, you know, one one thing about it is it's hard to see, as you've pointed out, that that it has anything to do, that ecclesia, the word ecclesia has anything to do with church. But if you know a little Spanish, iglesia actually sounds just like ecclesia, right? And so they are cognates. They're in, you know, two words in different languages that are actually related and have the same meaning. And But the Greek itself, it, it's two words, right? You have ek, which means out of, and klesia, which has to do with being called. And so you're talking about being called out of the world, and it also means to gather. And so you have both going on at the same time. You're called out of the world into this other gathering. And so this is very much something we can relate to as Latter-day Saints, right? The idea of being called out of the world and and then going into this community that we're, 
you know, that's supposed to be separate from the world and, and that is at least looking towards Zion. I'm fascinated by this idea that you have two meanings that come from the same word that seem to, on the surface, contrast each other. The calling out from and the gathering to as being one thing. They're, they're one and the same. I'm fascinated by that. And immediately when I thought about that, it brought to mind how Jesus called out his disciples into a gathering or a body that you could see as being kind of like a proto-church. I mean, it, it was really no different. It, uh, in the early church, even during, you know, after Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection, and then you've got Paul, he's addressing very small church gatherings in these various communities throughout Greece and Asia Minor and what, whatnot. And and so these aren't like, you know, what you would think of as a formalized church today in terms of like with a building and a liturgy and all that stuff. Or even an institution, right? Right. No, or not even an institution. I mean, one was so far distanced geographically and, and by communication from the other that they really had no interaction. And so they were they were essentially building the church from the ground up. I love I love what you said there, Riley, because I know where we're going with this conversation is where we can build the church from the ground up today continuing in that in that tradition that goes all the way back to the beginning of our tradition as Christians. Yeah, so that's that's getting back again to that consumer versus contributor kind of dichotomy about how we interface with the church. Like are we are we part of the growth of the church? Are we part of the evolution of the church? Or are we just consuming top down whatever's, you know, read to us or spoken to us? So it, I think it's you can have both. Just like you've got the definition of ecclesia meaning one thing that seems to contrast with the other, you can have both. Yeah, and you know, and it speaks to when we're building the church, we're really building, and if that's a community, then we're really building the community and we're building in some sense each other because to paraphrase Shakespeare, what is the church but the people? Right, and in the, the scriptural references to the gathering is referring to you, plural. You've made that that. Uh, that connection in the past uh, on episodes that we've recorded where he's, he's literally speaking to groups of people as individuals, but together. You're referring to the scripture that says your body is a temple, right? That body is that you and your body is plural. So it's, it's the body of Christ is actually the community of the, of believers, right? The community of Christians. Right. So you go back to Jesus and he calls these disciples out of and and I love this connection too because we're very much like Joseph Campbellites. We like this, <laughs> you know, this call to adventure and the um, just you know that the hero's that journey whole quest right? that we're all on the hero's journey, right? And I see an element of that in this idea of ecclesia, where Jesus essentially goes to from village to village or from house to house, and he says, "I want you." Oh, he sees some guys out on a fishing boat. I want you, and he's calling them out of this world of the mundane into a world of adventure. Yeah, and many are called, but few are chosen, right? And, and why are they not chosen? I mean, I think, well, why are they chosen? I'd rather say, why are they chosen? The ones who are chosen choose themselves. It's when you answer the call that you become chosen. Oh, that's interesting. Because it's voluntary. Yeah, it's voluntary, right? You're called. Do you answer the call? Okay, then you're chosen. If you don't answer the call, well, then you're not chosen. Yeah, and that goes straight to DNC as well, you know, if you have a desire to serve, you're called to the work. That's essentially it. If you if you respond yes. to the call, you're going you're going into this uh, adventure. And, exactly. And so, what what the church 
becomes and how these early disciples interface with the church, this gathering around Jesus, is in these series of important shared events. And so if we were to take, and I guess I'll highlight a few of those. You've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got the Last Supper, the Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John there as Elijah and Elisha and Moses come to Jesus. And they meet, you know, that those are amazing events. The experience of various miracles that Jesus uh, performs, the crucifixion and the resurrection. All of these are examples of events where the, the gathering of his disciples gets to witness and participate in a shared experience with the divine, with a, a literal deity right there. With a lot of excitement too, you know, a couple of a movie and a, and a TV show come to mind. And I don't watch a lot of TV shows, but I, I have watched The Chosen. This is something on YouTube, right? And then Risen. These two, um, one a TV show, one a movie, they really show the excitement and, and, the, and the freshness and newness of this idea, right? Of this gathering, of having this experience with Jesus. Have you, have you experienced them? Yeah, well, I've watched The Chosen uh, multiple times each episode. I'm in love with it um, because I think what it does is it highlights the human experience. Getting back again to experiences and how important they are in this idea of gathering. If, if you were to take all of those meridian of time examples of the disciples interfacing and interacting with Jesus in this gathering and then apply it to modern times, I mean, you had the same thing during the restoration. So you have, you know, you have Joseph's vision, which of course was the, the spark that lights the whole thing. But then after that, he immediately goes to his family and shares with them that experience. And then you've got several things after that that follow. You've got the testimony of the 11 witnesses, again, a group or a gathering experiencing this thing. You've got Zion's Camp, School of the Prophets, Kirtland Temple Dedication, the whole Western migration where the whole gathering gets to participate in this diaspora or, or uh, you know, being in the wilderness like Moses' people were, the colonization of the West. So all of these things are experiences. And so it seems to me that there is a connection that needs to be made more strongly between the individual and the church wrapped around experiences. Boy, we, we could have these experiences too. Are we really thinking about that? This is a question we have to ask ourselves, right? Are we having these kind of experiences today? And if the church is a restored church, and, the, and if it's the same as the primitive church, and, and it was at least at, at the period of the Restoration, as you've pointed out, then where is that happening today, and are we taking part in it? And I think that's really a question that goes to the core of the purpose of churches in general, is they have to be pointing towards or built around shared experience. And that might be something like a worldwide fast, you know, like President Nelson had a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago or whatever at the outset of the pandemic. It might be a a worldwide effort towards, you know, helping people have clean water or, you know, whatever that is, we can still have those kind of shared experiences today, but we have to incorporate that as a major element of what it means to be a gathering or a church. It occurs to me that with the two different meanings of ecclesia, that we could fall into the trap perhaps of, you know, taking on the first part of being called out. And so in, in some sense, separating ourselves from the world, quote unquote, and then still miss out on the second part. I mean, even we could gather, but the question is, are we having the full experience of what we're supposed to be having over here in this gathering as opposed to what we were having over there in the world? And so that's, it's on us, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's really about intent and what you're trying to, um, how you're trying to interface with this with this gathering. Because I, I've heard people in the past that have sort of written off the ascetic lifestyle or the the monk lifestyle. They basically say something along these lines. You know, they remove themselves from the world, and and they do that out of a sincere desire to be disciples or whatever. But then they no longer interface with the world, and so they they have no effect or impact and they live in a cave and do nothing. That's not really the true nature of what the ascetic lifestyle has done for people. If you look at, um, you know, convents or, or, um, monasteries, or if you go, you know, to the Eastern tradition, those Buddhist monasteries or Hindu temple experiences, those monks are not for the most part anyway, unless they're trying to reach some state of consciousness and they're not doing that on their own. They're, right. they're typically doing that in gatherings. There's a community. There's Same thing. Always the, a community. the word, yeah, the, the equivalent of ecclesia in that tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, would be sangha. And it has the same meaning. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting too, because even they're, they're always interfacing with the community and the, the community is always looking to them. And as a matter of fact, even the one who's spending some time alone and trying to reach some kind of uh, state, you know, through meditation, intense meditation, maybe secluding himself, is still there to remind us who are not doing that, that that's a part of life. And so it, there's a sense, I can think in terms of uh, in Islamic law, there are certain duties that devolve upon the entire community, and there are other duties that devolve only upon someone taking on that duty. So for example, someone has to be a doctor, because doctors are necessary, but not everyone has to be a doctor. So in some sense, we can say that we need somebody to do that, because that's a part of the human experience. And at the same time, as you pointed out, it's not like that's all they do. They are interfacing with the community. And I can think of a recent example of someone who, who was a monk who was told that he should leave the monastery and go out and teach, completely leave, not just go out and teach and come back, but leave the monastery. And that's um, Jay Shetty, who wrote the book, Think Like a Monk. And that's been a huge contribution to so many people. I've participated in, in his genius community and seeing the value that people are getting out of it and found value in it myself. Well, it, it calls to mind for me this this chapter in 1 Corinthians, and it's I think it's it might be 14. In any case, it, it, it talks about the value of each member of the body. And yes. so like not everyone is called to be the doctor, right? You can't have right. everyone be eyes. You can't have everyone be noses. All of the body parts are necessary for a fully functioning body to be able to have a shared experience. And there is strength in numbers because you get that. And contribute. Yeah, exactly. And, and contribute to each other, right? Yeah, that all may be edified, right? So everyone's going to have their contribution to this body. So, you know, because humans are social cre creatures, they tend to gather together in, in like-minded groups. And... And that becomes a, a prerequisite for the kind of creative power that you get when you have strength in numbers, the power in numbers. And, and I think that's essentially where churches do their best work is when they come together in, in like-minded communities with a shared vision and a goal to have an experience with the world and with each other. Yeah, there's certain experiences that you can't really have on your own, that it really does take a community or where if you are going to have that experience on your own, that you, in some sense, benefit from the support of those around you who are having, who are also having that experience alone. 
I, I can make an analogy here. Uh, a lot of times um, I read on my own and my kids read on their own. We do a lot of reading here at our house. But there are some times where I call the family together to read together separately. So we all sit in the same space, but we're reading separately. And there are other times where I read out loud to the whole family. Well, along with that, one other way that you do that, I'm sure, is you talk about the ideas you're reading with other people. Like, can you imagine just living on the top of a mountain, just reading for your own benefit and never getting to discuss these ideas with other people? No. No, as a matter of fact, I have a mentor who taught me that if that thinking is actually a group activity and that and I had a hard time understanding that I couldn't really relate to that. And he pointed out, he said, look, if you read something and you could not find anyone to talk to you about it, no one's interested in talking about it. You would either a continue to look far and wide until you found someone who would be willing to talk to you about it or b read something else such that you could find someone else to talk to you about it. You just you need a community to think. That points back to this idea that we are social and we do our best work in groups. There's a creative power, a multiplicative power, an exponential power that comes from being in a group around these shared ideas or shared goals. So I think we've outlined a few of the benefits, basically, of churches. Now, what we tend to see in terms of how churches operate is is they give us especially in the younger years, a basis or foundation for moral and ethical behavior. Now, Jesus talked about that stuff. You know, I mean, he he talked about ethics. He talked about morality, and he said you should do this and not do that. You know, we have, we have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Great Commandments. And so that stuff is definitely part of it. And we had Phil— But that's not the whole of it, right? That's definitely not the whole of it. You have—that's the outer shell— there's the inner kernel. So Jesus also talked about mysteries. Were you about to bring up Phil? Yeah, Phil uh, mentioned this in the in the episode we had him on with us where he said, you know— And that's Phil McLemore. Phil McLemore. He, he said it was important for a church to be able to help us establish moral and ethical behavior so that those aren't hindrances to reaching that inner kernel, right? You've got to— right. That helps us to establish the foundation, which without— having that foundation, you'll never break through to the inner experience. Yeah, I remember him pointing out that if you that a lot of people today in the world, quote unquote, they think that they can achieve enlightenment just by meditating when and they're not living a moral life necessarily. Which does not mean no one in the world is living a moral life. But there are people who aren't living a moral life who think that they're just going to learn how to meditate and achieve enlightenment. And so they, they're looking for that inner experience without that outer shell. And you really need both. And this, this harks back to our episode, one of the first ones we did together, Riley, on the, the esoteric and the exoteric. There are these two parts. And so he points out that when he teaches those people meditation, he goes into a little bit of a conversation of morality. And when he teaches people who, are, who participate in a church where they've been taught the morality aspect, then he focuses on, okay, now let's talk about the inner experience. And so there are two parts to this to this experience of of um, being a Christian. Yeah, and and as you mentioned, you know, depending on your tradition or background, you may be more steeped or schooled in in one or the other, whether it's the exoteric or esoteric. And when you're a member of a faith community, you tend to be pretty well versed in exoteric, and and you you get pretty good at checking the boxes and doing the things whether it's prayer, fasting, service, whatever the rituals are, you're good at ordinances and and you understand the basic meanings of those things. And that that shell 
of the exoteric almost protects you in a sense from a lot of the influences of the world. You become good at the basics. Like I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to steal. At least it should. That's the purpose, right? And, yeah. and once that outer shell helps to protect you, you're not going to be assailed by the things that would pull you away from having that, that inner experience. But you have to learn them both. There's, one doesn't come automatically as a result of the first or vice versa. You've got to learn them individually and then bring them together, right? I mean, the exoteric does not automatically guarantee you're going to have divine communion. No, it doesn't. And that's why we have to go into now. Now that we've talked a little bit about the moral, which we assume our audience is familiar with as, as members of the church, this, what the church has been pointing to all along, perhaps, and maybe we haven't seen, which is the inner experience that we're after. And it's certainly our focus here in Unlettered to Contemplation, right? Right, exactly. And, and so that, that's a whole other tradition and a whole set of um, practices that, that require work that you have to work on and develop over time, much much the same as you did with the exoteric. So it occurs to me, actually, so as we, I know we're going to go into what some of these practices are. And so if I can just rattle off a few, prayer, fasting, service, other rituals, I want to point out as we transition from the esoteric, or the exoteric rather, to the esoteric, that even these practices, that they can be used as checkboxes, right? We can just say, okay, I've fasted. So I've always taught my children, for example, that if you're that fasting is more than going hungry. So if you're just going hungry and complaining about it, or you're going hungry and you're not really praying and you're not really maybe studying the scriptures, you know, really focusing in inwardly and focusing on your dependency on the divine, which is, I think, what fasting is really all about, then you're not really fasting. You're just going hungry. And so then you can say, you can check off the box and think, okay, I've fasted, but you've missed the inner part of it. And so these outer practices are meant to foment the inner experience. They're meant to create a space for that and to facilitate them, right? Well, yeah, I guess what I would say to add to that, I agree. But I also say like you do all these ordinances and the exoteric practices doesn't guarantee you're going to not be a liar or a cheat or an adulterer. Nothing's guaranteed. However, repeating them frequently, doing them a lot, like fasting. If you do that for years and years and years and years, the chances of breaking through to the true meaning of what it is you're doing are much higher than if you just do it once or twice and think, okay, I get it. And and I think esoteric is no different. You know, you can meditate once or twice and say, fine, I did the thing and I just, nothing changed. But in order to really benefit from it, it's got to become a practice. And Phil talked about that as well. Yeah, you make a really good point there, Riley. It reminds me of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, where, and and this was popularized, these ideas were popularized. If you're not familiar with Nicomachean Ethics, if listeners haven't read that, maybe you've read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And what Covey was trying to do with that book was to restore the Aristotelian character ethic, which teaches that we can actually fake it till we make it. In other words, I can go through the, the motions, as you've pointed out, that can prepare me and lead me to the actual experience, even if I don't get it at first, right? If I just keep working on it. Now, again, this isn't work for work's sake. I think sometimes we, we fall into the trap of, uh, of as Latter-day Saints, of, of trying to do more. And so, that, so we have to keep in mind, too, that just as I teach my kids that it's not actually true that practice makes perfect when it comes to playing the piano, and I've, I've learned from uh, one of their teachers and remind them what she taught me, which is there's a difference between playing notes and playing the piano. 
And so we have to actually be focusing on playing the piano, not just playing notes. When we do actually perform these practices, it's intention that really matters, right? Intention really makes a difference. I think that leads us into our our next conversation and or a next part of this conversation. You know, we we've I think established that there's a basis for churches and that they have benefit, whether it's just bringing the exoteric, moral, ethical lifestyle or helping communities thrive and be able to do more than the individual could do, whatever the case is, there's, there's a few benefits that I think we've outlined. So there's this experience that Joseph has, though, that might tend to be confusing. And, you know, it's during the first vision, and Joseph is is wondering which church to join. That was his big question, like, where, where do I go to find truth? Because all of these, uh, you know, characters are giving him competing ideas about what what religion should be, and they're all reading from the same Bible. He's like, it's all confusing. And he's told to join none of them, meaning the churches, for they all have gone astray. And and so that that can be, you know, you, you can understand that in the traditional sense of how most of us do in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is to say that all the other churches had gone astray. And yet, in modern times today, our church leaders tend to back away from that understanding of what was communicated by God, in that they say that there's much good do- being done by the leaders and, and the members of churches throughout the world. So these, ten- these they seem like contradicting positions to hold to me, to say that all these churches have gone astray, and it and then you know 150 200 years later to say all these churches are doing really great work. Way to go, guys! So how can we possibly understand that a, a little bit better or reconcile? Oh, I'm glad. I'm so glad you asked because I wanted to take a stab at trying to reconcile the, the seeming contradiction here. So if we understand join none of the churches because they've all gone astray, we could understand that as it's not about the institutions, the Methodist church versus the Catholic church versus the Baptist church. It's not that, but rather the idea that that none of them, and it has nothing to do with their institutional form necessarily, is really to the point, meaning that, that not, and, and I'm not talking about necessarily having authority and ordinances. Again, those are important. Those are part of the exoteric. But what if it's the esoteric that is really the point of the exoteric, right? That's that outer shell, and its purpose is to protect the inner kernel. And the inner kernel is where the experience of the divine is, and where and that experience of the divine in our tradition includes the possibility of divinization, right? And so that's very much happening in that inner in that inner kernel, right? With that outer shell protecting it. And so if we're not really, if none of the churches, none of the gatherings, none of the communities of Christians are really focused there, and they're focused on creeds instead, it's about correct belief. I can think of a book that I heard on the Maxwell Institute podcast years ago. Uh, Pete Enns was being interviewed on his book, The Sin of Certainty, subtitled, Great Book. Why yeah, yeah. I, I, the subtitle is something like, I don't know if I can remember exactly, but something like, why God wants your trust more than your correct belief, right? Correct belief. Trust is actually the word, pistis is the word that's translated from Greek into English as faith. It really means trust. Pistis means trust. So God is looking for a trust, not our correct beliefs. And the churches were all and actually may still be and we even may be falling into that trap as Latter-day Saints of being focused on having the correct beliefs. I have the right beliefs. They don't. And if that's the focus, then we're missing the whole point. We've lost the plot. 
Well, and I guess maybe an example of that is you've got this this example of, of Joseph answering a newspaper reporter's question with a set of beliefs as basically just trying to elucidate for them, you know, what is it that you teach? Okay, this is what we teach. This is the, These are the things that we believe. And it was never meant to be a creed. And we've canonized it now and adopted it. And it's one of the main, most important things that we teach our primary kids in church is to memorize the articles of faith. And, and, and then it's no different. It's a creed. It's essentially a set of beliefs. Right. Then the question becomes, the question becomes if we are then focused on that as the be all end all, right? As an end in and of itself, then do we draw near unto him with our lips? And our hearts are far from him. So that's the postscript to the revelation from God to Joseph is that join none of them. They have all gone astray. And then it says, and the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds, this is almost like a clarifying point. I can imagine Joseph sitting there. God says to him, join none of them for they have all gone astray. And he kind of looks quizzically up at him like, what am I supposed to do then? And he says that all their creeds were an abomination in my sight that those professors, those who profess were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are, f- are far from me, to, uh, to quote the New Testament. And so essentially what he's being told there is I think what, what we're identifying here, that there's a lot of talking and not enough doing and, and living. Yeah, so the, the usual interpretation here is their beliefs are wrong. I'm about to reveal the right beliefs to you. And what could be going on here, a possible reading, right? A reinterpretation is they're not actually, they've lost the plot. They're not actually doing the thing. We're, this is, this is, they're not getting to the point of what is the church about, right? What is gathering together in this community supposed to be about? It's supposed to be about, again, building the church means building each other, right? What is the church but the people again? So it's building each other in having that inner experience and again even 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 divinization itself right and so so lacking power right yeah yeah and that that's what follows from that last quote they draw near to me with their lips but their hearts are from me they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof and so that form of godliness could be the the structure or or set of beliefs the creed that's this is the form of how our church is going to be organized. We believe in God the Eternal Father and His Son Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost. You know, prophets, apostles, all all the offices of the church uh, talk about the gathering and making of the world into a uh, paradisiacal glory. Those are all beliefs, but they do nothing in and of themselves because they lack the power. Yeah, and you know that power. When when I said power, it occurs to me that that miracles show forth the power of God. And it's interesting to note that the word that is translated from the Greek into English as miracles is dunamis, where we get the word dynamic in English. So it's about it's about power, right? So we could say even that those miracles are, that, that miracle and power are the same thing. Right? We're talking about the power of godliness, the power of the priesthood, which is an experience, which we can read about in in section 121, when it says, we have found, you know, by sad experience, I'm paraphrasing here, that all men, and we read that as though that's a gendered term, and it's not. People, human beings, given a little power, this is what happens. And then it's contradistinguished with what priesthood power looks like, 
which is this experience that, so if you're having that experience that's described in section 121, you're having priesthood power. You're feeling the power of God, this energy, this miracle. Yeah, as opposed to, as opposed to authority and, and letting it get to your head, right? When it talks about amen to the priesthood of that man, essentially they're saying you've got the form of godliness, but you lack the power, right? You lack the power. So you may have a, an authority in the hierarchical sense, but you don't have authority, the one that, it, it, again, just looking at a dictionary definition, there is an authority that means you've been put in a position, right? But another sense of authority is you speak from experience means you speak with authority, it's the one who has experience who has authority. So you're, if you're experiencing that power, which is present to any, no matter their gender, no matter what position they hold, no matter what church they belong to, priesthood power is a reality for anyone who's experiencing what is described in section 121. Yeah, I mean, and if you if you have any doubt about, you know, a lot of people will say, well, there's specific keys, and that, there's that's fine. There's you know the administrative keys of power, and then there's the spiritual keys of power administrative keys, the power that they wield is to organize people into groups and I'm in charge and you do this and you do that. The spiritual keys of power are more related to like, okay, faith has the power to call down the ministering of angels. That's according to Moroni chapter seven. So if you have that connection, that's a connection anyone can make between faith and miracles. And that's trust again, right? Trust the faith to call down angels is a matter of trusting in God that if you call, he will answer. So yeah, you bring up a good point. And so if we think in terms of, well, but there's keys. Sure, true enough. Look, we have 15 prophets in our church. Not one. There is no the prophet. We do say that one of those prophets, the president of the church, and by the way, all 15 of them hold the keys. One of them is authorized to use all the keys. So even those 14 other prophets aren't authorized to use those keys. What does that, do you see what I'm getting at in this conversation? What does that, what does that say to you, Riley? Well, what it says to me is that there is a difference there. I mean, what, what's being identified when we talk about all of the keys of the priesthood uh, in terms of, you know, prophets, apostles, and different offices in the church are those administrative keys. But the keys right. to priesthood that can be accessed by anyone are are the creative power behind the form. Right, and that includes the 14 other prophets and you and me. That's right. So, I mean, where we want to go with this conversation ultimately is we, we want to try to glean what the benefit of, of churches is and what that means for us today as individuals, as groups, as the gathering and how do we realize that benefit that we've tried to outline in the last 20 or so minutes? Like, how do we get to that point where we're not just a form of godliness, but we actually have the power of godliness and we're exercising it as a group? So how do we get to that point? Yeah, and how do we take full responsibility for having that experience and not leave it up to someone above us in a hierarchy? Yeah, I mean, I've heard this exact explanation before that that if church isn't working for you it's because you're going for the wrong reasons you keep expecting to be fed when maybe you need to be the one that feeds you know and i've heard that i think where people have and that's service it is service you know and there's definitely something to this idea and i think where people might struggle with the idea though is that they don't have like when you go to church and you want to be a a producer, a promoter, a creator, um, and not just a consumer, 
how can you do that within a structure where you don't have institutional power? And I think that's where people kind of lose it a little bit. And they're like, I I can't get anything done in that church. It doesn't mesh with how I do things or what I want to accomplish in the world because I'm not in charge. I have no power. What would you say would be the the answer to that, Riley? Well, that's a very real experience. It totally is for many people. Yeah. And, And at the same time, I agree with the idea that if you're just going as a consumer, it's not going to do much for you. Now, on the other hand, there, to, to look at the other side of the coin, there is, I think we have a, a legitimate expectation in being fed, right? Uh, we, we are, uh, those who minister for Christ are asked to feed his sheep. And so we can, at, I think at times we can be the sheep that need to be fed, and at times we can be the ministers who are doing the feeding. Yeah. I think there's place for us, for each of us to act in both roles. And so maybe that's the beginning of an answer. Certainly. I, I just wonder if, if you look uh, look at our church as, as the one that we're interfacing with the most, right? Is it today a reflection of its membership today? Or is it a reflection of membership from the 19th, 20th century? Is it a, is it a reflection of divinity? Is it a, what, is it, what is it reflecting? Well, you know, again, going back to Shakespeare, what is the church but the people? I think the church reflects the people just like if I want to know the state of the union, I don't listen to the president give a speech. I look around me. We the people are what is meant by the union, quote unquote, right? So if I want to know what the state of the union is, I just look around me and I see this is the state of the union, no matter what anybody says from the podium and the Congress. But something that Janet Johnson Spangler said when she was a guest on our show has stuck with me. The church works for people that are in it. Like the people that are in it and thriving and are in leadership positions and they love it every second of the day. That's the greatest thing ever. That's because the structure of that church works specifically for them and for their personality, their attitudes, all that stuff. There's a whole set and of And where they are, too, in their spiritual journey, right? Right, exactly. Because it may work for them now and not later and vice versa, too. Right. And we can't pretend that it just works for everyone equally. It, it doesn't. And, and the people that are on the outside are, like, somehow broken or, you know, tainted because it seems to be working great for those people. How come you're not in there? You know, right. what's wrong with you? And And I think that's you know, where this message starts to come into conflict with this idea of being just a a consumer versus a contributor. Because I think there's people who do want to contribute that find themselves on the outside because the church doesn't work for them. And and so is it really today a reflection of its members? I guess that's part of the question. Or is there, is there too much connectedness to, you know, what it was in the past? And, and so that's where we have to look at it and say, is it up to me to take the reins? I mean, you, you have this famous movie quote from Phil the Dreams that says, if you build it, they will come. But that kind of idea is a little bit dangerous within, the, uh, within our church. They don't want you to build anything. They just want you to come and enjoy the program. Well, do they? Or are we, are we taught to build the kingdom of God? And is the kingdom of God not within us? Well, the plan for building the kingdom is already laid out. You just need to execute it. Right. Well, but, you know, that has to be interpreted. 
even if the, even if we say here's uh, here's where you can read in writing how to build the kingdom of God, the writing still has to be interpreted. And by the way, when it was written down, it was written down by a prophet, but it was not dictated by God. So first, the prophet had to understand it in his own context and write it down, and then we had to read it and understand it in our own context. And I was talking about this with my daughters yesterday. In their homeschool studies, we've read a number of utopias, and we just read one from the from the Italian Renaissance, La Città del Sole, The City of the Sun by Tommaso Campanella. And we're talking about how the problem with utopia is, even if, because the idea came up, well, these are the ideas of Tommaso Campanella. And why would anybody go along with him? And how can any, how are we ever going to get people to agree? And so I said, well, what about Zion? How does that work? And say, well, you know, God has the answer to how to build Zion. And so it became this conversation that I'm having here with you, Riley, which is, yeah, but if 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 two of us, you know, look at this plan of how to build Zion, we're still going to have different ideas about how to go about it. Even if we're reading the same text, we're going to understand it differently and interpret it differently. So it's a little more complicated than. Than it seems, right? Absolutely, and and I think that that has been laid out for us perfectly this year as we've studied doctrine and covenants, because you've you've essentially got a 19th century church leader and church membership trying to execute upon their understanding of how best to build Zion, and then if you go and try to interpret Zion through a 20th century lens, even according to what the leadership of the church was saying during the 20th century, it became very different. It was a completely different vision. It was not go to Jackson County and build buildings and organize them in city blocks like this, and then people will gather from all points of the world. The definition changed, and so the understanding changed. The source didn't change. God still wants us to build Zion, to come out of Babylon and build Zion. It's the how-to. And this is essentially what I was getting at, are are the how-tos, are the practices that we currently have, how many of them are vestiges of the 19th century or the 20th century? Are there other ways to do this that that do work for me? If I'm one of those people that are you know on the outside looking in, are there ways to do this that are creative and unique and speak to me as a 21st century Latter-day Saint? Definitely. So to answer your question, Riley, I think you know to, if I can answer again, the church is a reflection of the people on the one hand, in the sense that they the people are they're actually they're actually giving up their power they're 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 not they're relegating their power the power that actually belongs to them as the people that make up the church rather than taking and experiencing that power and building zion as you've pointed to in an, in a new way in a way that makes sense for them now you know there's a quote from thomas jefferson that's always really spoken to me it's interesting because we have the idea as Latter-day Saints that, that the Constitution is the be-all, end-all of earthly government, at least. I'm not sure that we always recognize that, that you know, a heavenly government doesn't work that way, that that's separate and distinct. And, and that's, that should be obvious because all forms of earthly government, including ours, even in theory, not just, not, not just thinking about the practice today, however far that's strayed from the theory, is that they're actually based on coercion. But the priesthood power uh, by which God governs is not based on coercion. Again, going back to section 121, it's about persuasion, not coercion. And so, but this idea from Thomas Jefferson that the earth belongs to the living, I think is what you're speaking to here, Riley, in terms of, of the church. You know, the church that there is today belongs to the people that are the church today. And again, don't just think about 
the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Think about the global community of Christ. The body of Christ includes all of those Christians. And as you've pointed out, Riley, the church, our church leadership has recognized that. Yeah, I think That's we not would— controversial at all. We'd be totally naive to think they haven't done all of the studies and taken all the polls and done all the surveys to find out exactly where the mindset of the average church member is. They know this stuff. In, in fact, I was speaking with uh, Shiloh um, last week, and he mentioned a conversation he had with Jana Reese, um, who did the, the book, the 20, what was it, the, the New Mormons or something like that. It was basically a survey of the new members of the church, the younger members of the church, and, and their, their feelings. The and, next Mormons, The right? next Mormons, that's the one, yes. And uh, it was basically revealed to her that, oh, yeah, the church already knows all this stuff. Well, of course they do. Of course they do. There's 16 million members. How would they not know this stuff? And why would they not try to figure it all out? And that's subtitled, How Millennials Are Changing the LDS Church. Does, are you suggesting, Riley, I'm curious, are you suggesting that while, while we think, while the members think that they are subjecting themselves to the church, that the church is acti- actually subjecting themselves, the institution, right, is actually subjecting itself to them? What I'm suggesting is, is that the church as an institution the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and probably every other large church out in there in the world knows very well where the members of that body sit in terms of their attitudes and, and uh, you know, cultural understandings. And I would think large and small, Riley. Sure, and they have a choice to make at that point. You know, do we— Sorry, a lot of uh, small churches, you know, I can think of my uh, old neighbor who's a, a Baptist pastor. You know, he has his own church. And they're catering to a certain, you know, congregant. And that, that's the congregant they're, they're going to attract. And that's the congregant they're going to keep. And others who think differently won't be a part of that congregation. It's the same idea, right? Well, there's a whole group of people, I think, probably more the status quo type that would say, like, why are we even bothering? You know, like, let's, we do things the way God told us to do it, period, end of story. As if God doesn't speak to the people that are living right now, right? It's it's a very closed, fixed mindset versus that growth mindset, and I and it denies the it denies continuing revelation. Absolutely right. It, it basically says that you know the thoughts and feelings and and attitudes of today's church member are irrelevant because God's already spoken. By the way, let's not forget that those 19th century ideas about how to build Zion didn't work in the 19th century. Why would we think they would work today? Right. But yeah, there's a whole host of people within the church that hold on to this idea that Jackson County, Missouri will still be Zion whenever that happens and we're all going to move and sell our homes and all this stuff, right? I mean, it's just silliness. And and I don't mean that to degrade anyone, but I'm just trying to, I I guess I'm trying to elucidate the mindset, this fixed mindset that, that the canon is closed, that revelation is dead. And it's not. There's this Scripture in Revelation twenty one five, where where he says, and this is Jesus, and he, and he that sat upon the throne said, "Behold, I make all things new," and this is speaking in relation to this body of this body of Christ. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. This speaks to me about the same that Zion does. It's like you know, all of one heart, no more poor among them, you know. These are these ideals, but how you achieve the ideal is new for every generation. It says, I will make all things new, like the how-tos especially, of how each generation goes after these challenges. That's up to the living. 
Yeah, back to Jefferson again, right? So I'm going to come back to something I, I said earlier, and I, I posed it as a question to you, and I'm just going to take it on as a statement from me. It seems to me that in some way the church is, that while the church members are thinking that they are subjugating themselves or submitting to the church, the church is in at the same time actually catering to them. And it has to. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the church is the, is the people that there are. The church is for the people that there are. It's both, right? The church is, as the people is the people that there are, and the church as the institution is for the people that there are that are the other sense of the church. So either way, what we have is that it's really ultimately up to us to lead. There's a sense in which we lead, we may have to lead the leaders because, again, they're leading in some sense by following because they have to keep us in the fold. Does that make sense? Absolutely. The, the vitality of their church depends upon it. Right. So how, Because, of course, they can't lead us in some way where no one's ready to go and then nobody follows. And then, oh, we have a church, but it's this empty institution. It's an empty set, right? There are no members that actually follow. So how do we actually lead from below? I think there's some examples that we can bring in. At least one comes to my mind from the scriptures. But first, you have something. Well, no, I, I just want to say that's, I think, one of the more either misunderstood or ignored uh, doctrines of this ecclesia, of this gathering, is that all the members are important. You know, we, we tend to think it's the head, right? And we've heard it said in the past that, oh, it's the neck that turns the head. Well, wh- where does the neck sit? The neck sits on the shoulders, and you can't grab anything without arms, and you can't get anywhere without legs. Like, every body part is important and needed, and and contributes to the whole of the gathering. And so we might be grassroots. We might be the feet and the toes, but those are super important and super necessary just as much as the head is. And so we we need to, I mean, to get away from the metaphor a little bit, essentially, we need to take on our own spiritual individual authority and incorporate that into the whole and believe and actually operate as if it's just as important. Wow. Meaning I can contribute something of value. And, and I'm needed in that way. And, and I'm just as important to the whole community as that monk sitting meditating in the uh, monastery, right? He actually contributes something. I've tried to show that he contributes something to the greater community and vice versa. They contribute to him because they feed him, right? And they do it because they find value in what he's doing. Because just like, you know, just like Catholics uh, offered their money and support to those who are praying in the convents, you know, it was, be- it was believed and maybe still is by Catholics that, that the prayers that the, mo- that the nuns would offer had greater effectiveness than any that they could offer. And so they support them, meaning the people support the, the monastery, so that, they, so that they in turn can receive the benefit of the prayers from those nuns. Everybody has a part to play. Right. So... You know, when we change our mindset a little bit away from the strictly consumer mindset, which we're kind of used to, to one of a contributor, and we start to look at it as like, okay, I can actually contribute to not only the building of Zion, but just kind of like this worldwide church body. And it becomes then more of a living church that draws its breath from the engagement of all of its members or body parts, so to speak instead of just just the leadership, the administrative leadership. Wow, Riley, I'm struck over and over in this conversation by this idea that, that we may be waiting, you know, as, as the, the people who are the church, 
waiting for the institution, the church, to do something when it's really us. It's really, we're the ones that are supposed to be doing something well, there's to a, move the ball forward. You know, there's a healthy Who's tension. Who's going to build Zion? The, the tension between, you can call it the old guard and the, and the new generation or whatever, however you want to frame it, that tension is actually healthy. Like, because all of, of them course. are members of the church and they all have a stake in it and they, they all want to see it succeed. It's just they have different visions about how to get there. And it's this is such an important point. Right. And so it really it's is. less and about like trying to make my vision the one, it's more about just putting my vision out there and contributing and being part of it. Yeah. And, and that point is it, it expands outward to problems in all of society, right? What we need is more of different viewpoints, less of stifling of, of different voices and more of the airing of those disagreements or different viewpoints or ideas and having them come. You know what's possible is synergy, something else that Covey taught in his book, Seven Habits, right? The idea that one plus one equals three, five, seven, right? The idea that, when, that if we have these different ideas come into contact with each other, that they can result in something, a third idea, right? Something else. Well, if all we are as a gathering is the sum of our parts, then we're no better than if we we're just all summarily separated into individual fiefdoms. There, there has to be some benefit from the gathering. And that's what you're talking about, is that synergy. And that's a key point. That's a key point to this conversation. That's the value of churches. So what does the future look like? Like this to me is is the key question where do we go from here you know when we're when we're babies and youth there's this sort of expected and maybe even healthy dependence upon an institution whether it's your your family with your parents or it's the church or your community like you depend on others for your subsistence uh, subsistence and sustenance um, and then you move to this stage of participation where you're like okay now I'm part of things I get the program and I'm operating within the program but am I, am I just a robot? Am I just, you know, am I just, you know, hitting my button over and over and over as part of like this giant machine that needs everyone to hit the button? I'm just going through the motions, the checklist gospel, all right, of that, right? Right. Which again, maybe the community needs people to hit that button. Otherwise the whole machine doesn't work. But is there something else I can do with my other hand too? You know, I mean, is there more to it than just participation in the program? And so the next stage for, I think people is they, they either fall off the map and they become completely disillusioned because they think their job is pointless of just hitting this button or checking the box over and over and over. And so they never get to that next stage. And the next stage you could call leadership, but I I don't want to confuse it as if like, you know, you, if you don't become a leader in the administrative sense, like the prophet or an apostle or a bishop or state president or relief side president, then I guess you didn't hit your stride. You didn't really do what you were supposed to do. Your efforts weren't good enough. No, let's talk about grassroots leadership. Right. And right, the leadership that we provide from below and and again give some examples. Right. So, you know, if you're if you're the kind of leader who sees the possibilities that are afforded within your institution and take advantage of those in your own unique way, you bring your own unique gifts to the table, then you're helping the whole institution to magnify its calling as a as a body. By the way, Riley, this reminds me when Shiloh and I were, and one other friend, uh, Jared Hensley, were making a documentary and we're going around asking 
people in different religious traditions, leaders, thought leaders in different religious traditions, and also from you know secular leaders. Uh, even we even interviewed a, a Navy SEAL um, leader. I can't remember his rank. You know, uh, somebody you know higher up in in the uh, hierarchy, the military hierarchy. And we're asking the question: Is hyperactive nonviolence realistic today? And so this question, you know, when I tell people this, they usually ask me, what is, what is nonviolence? I mean, what is hyperactive nonviolence? And, and the, first of all, the answer is it's not pacifism because that's passive, right? You just, you don't do anything. Um, and so then they said, so what does hyperactive look like? Like, what does it look like to be hyperactive and non- nonviolent? And my answer, which I think applies here by analogy to this conversation is that depends on you and what you have to offer. So for us, for Shiloh and Jared and I, it was making this documentary. And it occurs to me, and this is why I thought of it, that the contribution that you and I are making, Riley, is this podcast. This is an example. And it's not the only one, that, that, but it's the one that you and I are making together. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think of some of the, the great Latter-day Saint authors out there right now that are making their contributions, you know, with Patrick Mason or Adam Miller, or some of these good thinkers that are that are stretching the limits of what's possible within the confines of the whole plan. It's still within the program, right? But the program is gradually changing and it's fitting more people. And so the, the tent is getting bigger. The stakes are expanding. And that's biblical, expanding the stakes, right? Right. Yeah. This is a different interpretation of it. And I like this interpretation. Well, I guess maybe the way I would finish as we're coming towards the end here is there's this there's this quote from Gandhi that I love. We've probably said it in prior episodes, but essentially it's become the change you want to see in the world. Oh, I love that quote. I would take the world and just make that the church or the church is and just say, become the change you want to see in the church, in the body of Christ. Like God values your contribution. He knows you have a part to play in this building of Zion um, of this kingdom of God on earth. And I think we're all empowered to play that part and to contribute in whatever our sphere of influence is, however small. And I think we're all called to do that. And I, I think that's the real meaning of, of magnifying our calling. Our calling is not a, a mundane vocation within you know your church building. Maybe you're cleaning pews and that might be your calling. Who knows? But it doesn't have to be that they're not one and the same. What do you, what's your unique talent, skill, or um, affinity with with the church that helps you to contribute to this building of the kingdom of God on earth? Yeah, I think you're speaking of a calling that comes directly to you from God, not through uh, priesthood uh, hierarchy, right? But directly to you from God. That is, by the way, maybe even a part of, we can go deeper, it's maybe a part of your very nature, your individual nature, right? That's something that that speaks, that where God is speaking to you according to who you are as an individual. You know, I, I'm going inter- to interject for just one minute because that's a great point. And I, I want to maybe draw that out for just a minute. When my daughter, this is an example, my daughter, um, she's 21 now, when she graduated high school, she's like, I have no idea what I want to study. And my wife and I were kind of shocked by that. We're like, really? You have no idea? We recognized in her the gifts that she hadn't explicitly recognized in herself. Like to us, it was obvious. And so rather than try to steer her, we just had a conversation and said, well, what are you good at? You know, what do you enjoy? Uh, What do people tell you your gifts are? 
And as she started to go through this Q&A with us, it became very clear to her what her calling was, what her own gifts, her divine spiritual gifts were. And it was to help, you know, those who have handicaps or special needs. Um, she's always been gifted with that. And so she went on to study special education. And currently she's the occupational therapist for the school district where we live and helping those kids on a one-to-one -one basis every single day. And it's beautiful. That's her calling. And she thrives in that setting. So I guess what that would prompt for me is the question, have I asked other people, like, what are my spiritual gifts? And maybe we're exercising it right now, like you said, in doing this podcast. That very well could be the, the case. I'm a talker. But that's a question that all of us should be asking other people, like, what are, what can I contribute? What are my spiritual gifts? And let people tell you. Yeah. Well, you know, in closing, Riley, there's a, a story from the scriptures I wanted to bring into this conversation for those who might think, because we, we think sometimes, again, in, ten, in terms of we need somebody who's in the hierarchy above us to tell us what to do. And yet sometimes that leadership can come from us and still fit within that program, as you've called it, right? So I think of Nephi when he breaks his bow and, and you know, everybody's going to starve. And his, his dad, Lehi, who's the prophet, the prophet, we say, right? Ne Nephi is a prophet too. So he's the, the equivalent of the president of the church today that we call the prophet, even though we have 15 prophets and, and one president. You know, he, he doesn't actually just take over, but he does do what he's good at, right? And he builds that new bow that everybody else thinks this can't be done. Well, maybe for them it couldn't be done, right? Maybe they couldn't do it, but he could. And then he goes to his father. He goes back to the, the, to the leadership. Uh, again, not that he isn't a leader in this story. He's a leader. So they're both leaders at the same time is what I'm trying to get at. And so he goes back to the, to the hierarchical leader and says, okay, I've done my part. Now what do I do next? Yeah, that, that's a perfect example. Yeah, Nephi is the grassroots. Lehi is the administrative, you know, institutional leader. And that, that tension that exists actually leads to a great solution or outcome for the whole family. It's, it's really a great... And they work yeah, together. It's a great parallel. Yep. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to say in closing, Riley? No, I've really appreciated the conversation. I think that there's a great opportunity that I hope we're not missing out on to contribute to the whole body of Christ and really be a part of the solution for building the kingdom of God on earth. Me too. And I hope that in recording this podcast that we've answered our calling to minister to you. And, and that's one that came straight to us from, from the divine, not through... I have a calling in my word as a minister, as a ministering brother. This is different. And, and, this, is, and this, this reaches many more people and, and I know from the comments that we've received, from the response that we've had, that it reaches people who really are served by this ministry. And so I'm grateful to you, uh, Riley, for the opportunity to work with you in, in, this, in this calling and to, to Shiloh who invited me. You know, and I'll just piggyback on what you said there, Chris, because we want to hear from our, our listeners, uh, our audience. We want to know how you feel about this episode or other episodes, what speaks to you, what has helped you. And we would love to incorporate more of that feedback in future episodes. So please reach out to us. You can 
You can find us on Latter-day Peace Studies page on Facebook. You can leave comments on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google, wherever you listen, please don't hesitate to leave comments. Positive or negative, we will definitely read those, respond, and incorporate those. So thanks for your engagement. Yeah, and you know, with one of the one of the flaws I think of the podcast platforms is that, as far as I know, you can't actually uh, comment on a particular episode only on the podcast as a whole. But when these we have the YouTube channel, though. right? The that's what I was going to say. The YouTube channel is a great place to comment on particular episodes, and also there's that possibility. I think on Facebook, if you know Latter Day Peace Studies is posting a link to each episode, there's a place where you can comment on that episode too. So thanks again for being with us. We look forward to being with you again next week for Latter Day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado, and I'm Riley Risto. <laughs>